It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. So thank you all for coming. Um, it's enormously heartening and exciting to see that there's such a, a depth of hunger to think and hear and engage with Eckhart. So I'm very much a channel for you to do that. I've spent 25 years working a bit more, uh, working on Eckhart now, and he's been a real pivotal figure in my own life and in my spiritual life and my whole life, because you can't sort of pop Eckhart in a box. It sort of takes everything over. So I'm sure that will be something we'll all talk about over the day. But my role as a channel for Eckhart is really to help us all explore together how he might be able to help us be now, today. Um, we live in an age where we've all got a kind of pocket overlord with us constantly. Um, any hour of the day, we can be called to dutifully respond to emails or curate our lives uh, real time, minute by minute, for our legions of Instagram followers or whatever it might be. But it, more than ever, can feel painfully necessary to set time aside to seek and hopefully find some peace. One of my favorite thinkers, the Buddhist Thich Nhat Hanh, who called himself the brother to Meister Eckhart, wrote in a book called Being Peace that from time to time to remind ourselves to relax and be peaceful, we may wish to set aside some time for a retreat, a day of mindfulness, when we can walk slowly, smile, drink tea with a friend, enjoy being together as if we were the happiest people on earth. We come to places like this and days like this hoping to locate peace, or at least a sort of roadmap towards it. Why peace? Because I think in quietness, in the absence of thought and speech, we can be fully grounded in the present moment, can feel fully alive, where our silence meets and speaks to that deeper silence of another world. I think of all the medieval thinkers who I've spent time with, Eckhart might be the best place to help us direct our modern minds towards peace. When we think about peace, certainly in the English language, we tend to couple it with quiet, peace and quiet. It's something that we feel wistful about, that we seek, desire, or strive after. It's a counterpart to our busy, fragmented lives. Peace is the goal of our frustrated cries to leave me in peace. Won't you let me have some peace? It's something that we cherish, that we feel we lack in the day to day. Something we might feel we only possess in its absence. 
after death, when we may at last and perhaps for the first time hope to rest in peace. The need for peace is so profound that whole movements now are dedicated to going off-grid to escape the intrusion of the world. It's why we meditate. Like the saints of old, we, we turn away from civilization to find the modern equivalent of a stylite's pillar, the hermit's cave with crystal brook and friendly lion on tap. <laughs> There's such a demand for time out that you can hire rooms. You can hire rooms. There's more than two dozen British universities that have courses on mindfulness right now. There's global corporations which feel that it's important to give their top executives mindfulness. Even within the NHS, in schools, in prisons, we recognize that that's needed. And as I say, there's even a contemporary company called Breather that operates out of nine American and Canadian cities that allow members to book peace and quiet on demand. <laughs> a kind of micro-retreat, so helping them to find focus and peace and quiet. Is this a sign of a sort of sad indictment of our pace of life? Or can we take it as a positive sign of changing values? a growing recognition of and return to deeper priorities, despite our busyness. But before we think that any age apart from ours was a haven of peace and tranquility, it's worth remembering that that desire for a quiet sanctuary is far from you. Nor is the concern about life's incessant stimulations and demands a 21st century problem. In 1968, the mystical theologian Thomas Merton was complaining that to allow oneself to be carried away by a multitude of conflicting concerns, to surrender to too many demands, to commit oneself to too many projects, to want to help everyone and everything is to succumb to the violence of our times. It destroys our own inner capacity for peace. 80 years before Merton, in 1888, the Irish poet W.B. Yeats wrote one of his most famed verses, a poem redolent of the same desire for tranquility and solitude amidst the turbulence of life. I will arise and go now and go to Inishfree and a small cabin build there of clay and wattles made. Nine bean rows will I have there, and a hive for the honeybee, and live alone in the bee-loud glade. And I shall have some peace there, for peace comes dropping slow, dropping from the veils of the morning to where the cricket sings. There midnight's all a glimmer, and noon a purple glow, and evening full of the linnet's wings. I will arise and go now for always, night and day, I hear lake water lapping with low sounds by the shore, while I stand on the roadway, or on the pavement's gray, I hear it in the deep heart's core. 
It's a seductive vision. This quiet isle, the stuff of every Robinson Crusoe desert island fantasy. Every would-be Walden getting away from it all. In his autobiography, Yeats would explain that a sudden desire had come on him when walking down Fleet Street. He said, very homesick, I heard a little tinkle of water and saw a fountain in a shop window which balanced a little ball upon its jet and began to remember, remember lake water. His wish is to replace the city humming with traffic and human voices with the color and sounds of nature. Hi, no, don't worry, welcome. For with the linnet's wings and bees and crickets, he thinks he'll find ease in his soul. The destination is far off, requiring departure and a journey. Yet Yeats must arise and go, for the incessant memory of the peace he once knew and believes he could enjoy again, if only were alone on the island, ironically robs him of finding any stillness where he is. The colorless, dismal road, as he sees it, where he stands. I spoke of Walden a moment ago, before Yeats even in 1845, Perhaps our most famous modern hermit, Henry Thoreau, embarked on his own retreat, tormented by the pace of existence. He said, still we live meanly like ants. Why should we live with such hurry and waste of life? And even, taking you back through time, even in my stay, this concern, this same issue, which brings us all here today, was not a new one. Eckhart's talks of instruction, given to his Dominican novices when he was working as prior in Erfurt, allow us to access the counsel he delivered in his regular Q&A sessions. In talk three, he describes a problem that he's regularly posed. This is one of my favorite Eckhart's. People say, Alas, sir, I wish I stood as well with God or had as much devotion or were as much at peace with God as others are. I wish I were like them or that I was so poor or I can never manage it unless I'm there or there or do this or that. I must get away from it all. Go and live in a cell or a cloister. Eckhart says to those people, in fact, the reason lies entirely with yourself and nothing else. It is self-will, though you may not know it or believe it, unless you flee from yourself. Then wherever you flee to, you will find obstacles and restlessness no matter where it is. <clears throat> in front of his novices, full of youth's ardent hunger and strong opinions, Eckhart offers gentle mockery for those literal-minded spiritual tourists who think God is only to be found 
by those with the leisure to embark on a retreat or a pilgrimage, appearing on demand as we arrive at the wilderness or reach the gates of Jerusalem. To his older, more experienced parish audiences in his German sermons, Eckhart speaks as if among friends, with bold honesty. To quote from his Sermon 69, a man may go out into the fields and say his prayers and know God. But if he is more aware of God because he is in a quiet place, as is usual, that comes, that comes from his imperfection and not from God. For God is equally in all places and in all things and is equally ready to give himself as far as in him lies. And he knows God rightly, who knows God equally in all things. Eckhart's full in that sermon of characteristic understanding. He doesn't scorn this imagined seeker lost in arable prayers. He concedes that it is usual for us to be more conscious of God in the quiet of rural seclusion than in the bustling marketplace or the high street cologne. He would understand Yeats's desire for a solitary hermitage in a bee-loud glade. As we learned in our meditation, always painfully in our meditation, we're human beings housed in human bodies and as Eckhart says elsewhere in Sermon 9, we respond to the stimuli of, of the physical world. He said, no saint ever lived, nor will ever attain to, the state where pain cannot hurt him, nor pain, more pl let me say it again, nor, no saint ever lived, nor will ever attain to the state where pain cannot hurt him, nor pleasure please. It's easier to imagine ourselves more receptive to hearing angels' voices in birdsong and brook, to being more open to God's words upon the moorland under the open sky. Nonetheless, Eckhart's message is clear. God is equally in all things and all places. God does not restrict himself to an Easter week residency at Rome or the quietest peak in the Dales. If we find it easier to look for him there, that says more about us than it does about God, who's equally to be found in the homeless shelter, the coffee shop queue, the crowded tube carriage. As Eckhart declares in a very famous passage from his Sermon 13b, some of you may know this already, if a man thinks he will get more of God by meditation, by devotion, by ecstasies, or by special infusion of grace, then by the fireside or in the stable, that is nothing but taking God, wrapping a cloak about his head, and shoving him under a bench. This is why I love Eckhart. 
For whoever seeks God in a special way gets the way and misses God, who lies hidden in it. But whoever seeks God without any special way gets him as he is in himself. And that man lives with the Son, and he is life itself. The danger is that in striving after peace, even if that peace is attained, we maybe lose our chance at the encounter with something more profound, which is God himself. We've mistaken the signpost for the destination. We've got the way, but missed God. With the image of the Godhead wrapped in a blanket, bundled and under a bench, Eckhart shows how our attempts to seize an encounter with the divine through adopting holy practices only serve to belittle God's immensity, doing clumsy, disrespectful service to what should be treated with the profoundest awe. We are to seek God without any special way. But if true peace isn't to be found by seeking out a wilderness or a Tibetan monastery, what and where would Eckhart locate it? I want to turn to that question with you now. In his first German sermon, Eckhart offers a description of a place within the soul that he calls the ground. I quote, that ground is the silent middle. Here, nothing but rest and celebration for this birth, this act, that God the Father may speak his word there. There's a lot there to understand. The ground is not outside of us, a place or a state that we can reach or attain. It's an idea that explodes all physics, biology, geography. It is at one and the same time within each one of us and within God. It is one and many, outside and within, everywhere and nowhere. It is a middle, Eckhart says, what we could think of as a neutral space. Elsewhere, he likens it to an internal Jerusalem, a holy city, a place of peace, where God and the soul meet. The image of ground is a really fruitful one, calling up thoughts of awaiting emptiness, readiness, fertile receptivity. Although other mystics use the language of the desert or the wasteland, Eckhart's ground denotes something friendlier and more positive, an area ready to be occupied, inhabited, planted. It's characterized by an absence of effort or striving, here nothing but rest. It does not even hold the yes of our acceptance. It is empty, but already celebrating 
what has not yet occurred within it, the birth of God, where its silence will be shattered. Further on in Sermon 1, Eckhart says, quoting from the Book of Wisdom, in the middle of the night, when all things were in quiet silence, there was spoken to me a hidden word. It was so deep in St. Paul's ground that his intellect could not reach it. It was veiled from him. He therefore had to pursue it and search for it in himself, not outside. It is all within, not outside. The speaking of the divine word, Eckhart's way of describing the moment union of God and the soul can only occur in human silence. Eckhart, as negative theologian, denies that any language is appropriate to use of God, since all words are faulty and flawed, full of thingness, belonging to the created realm, and therefore wholly inadequate to expressing any idea of the eternal. How can we find words, after all, adequate to describing their own transcendence? We have no special sacred language, no supplementary dictionary. And even if we had, it would fall equally short. Eckhart therefore resorts to silence as a better descriptor of God's ineffable nothingness. But even silence is not enough. For though we hold our tongue, the pathways and synapses of our brain may be buzzing with thoughts and words. An inner discourse so loud and lively that it's more akin to the busy streets of our inner Jerusalem than the peace of Eckhart's silent ground. We're not falling into a temporary hush, an in-breath preparatory to uttered speech. We must forget words, must even move beyond the thoughts or sensual stimuli that might prompt us to begin to strive after language. He says, a man should flee his senses, turn his powers inward, and sink into an oblivion of all things and himself. We must live almost as if dead, Eckhart says in Sermon 2. To this end, then, assemble all your powers, all your senses, your entire mind and memory, direct them into the ground where your treasure lies buried. But if this is to happen, realize that you must drop all other works. You must come to an unknowing if you would find it. The soul, burying all her powers, senses, mind, and memory, is divested of everything. She enters the ground naked. Her nakedness is the unknowing Eckhart speaks of, an absence of thought beyond even forgetting. The soul has detached herself from everything in the world, even her sense of herself, and most importantly, 
of her ideas of God. The soul is annihilated, willingly and fully nothing, and can thus become part of the nothingness which is God. This ground, this nothingness, every soul once inhabited before they existed on earth, when they were present in the imagination of God. Christian theology holds that God created the universe out of nothing. This non-existent nothing is the source of all things in creation, without which they could not exist. So for Eckhart, God is nothing, and humanity and all creation are something. In the ground, some things fall away. In a silent, wordless embrace, the soul joins with God because she is so empty that he is able to fill her and act through her. The soul willingly abandons her name, her identity, which had been a conspicuous reminder that she was a separate and distinguishable thing apart from God, who is discernible and nameable only in the recognition that any name we give him is inappropriate. Although this union occurs in silence and the peace of receptive emptiness, we would be mistaken if we thought of it as easy or nice. If we imagined Eckhart's peace as something soft and gentle. His detachment is rigorous, uncompromising, tough. It insists in our being fully open in the here and now. It is tranquil only in that peace requires us to be ever-present in each moment, taking each without expectation, anxiety, or promise. Though fruits may come from the ground, Eckhart's apophaticism insists that we see it in its brutal emptiness, its perpetual readiness for flourishing. The moment we plant it with a thought or word, its unknowing is lost. Therefore, Eckhart reminds us in Sermon 2, Christ said, I did not come upon earth to bring peace, but a sword, to cut away all things, to part you from sister, brother, mother, child, and friend. Accordingly, a master says, a man must collect all his powers as if into a corner of his soul, where hiding away from all images and forms, he can get to work. Here he must come to a forgetting and an unknowing. There must be a stillness and a silence for the word to make itself heard. We cannot serve this word better than in stillness and in silence. There we can hear it. And there too we will understand it aright in the unknowing. 
Ironically, that description of detachment sounds something like Yeats's Isle of Inishfree. But what's literal for Yeats is metaphorical in Eckhart, not a rural idyll, but an inward state that can and must be maintained in all places and at all times, in Fleet Street as fully as in Sligo. The silence there is not a physical hush, but the emptiness of detachment, the absence of language, images, and forms, Eckhart says, silence. The absence of thought, even of will or desire, a stillness. Into this vacuum God enters, filling the soul and speaking himself within her in a divine birth. It's a consummation devoutly to be wished. So much so that Eckhart anticipates the disruptive effects of our desire for union, saying in Sermon 3, Now, you might say, Oh, sir, you said so much about how our faculties should be quiet, and now you go setting up a great clamor of yearning in this quietness. That would be a great moaning and outcry for something we haven't got, and that would be the end of this peace and quiet. Whether it were a desire or purpose or praise or thanksgiving or whatever the mind might beget or imagine, it would not be perfect peace or absolute stillness. To this imaginary person, he says, let me explain. When you have completely stripped yourself of your own self and all things and every kind of attachment and have transferred, made over and abandoned yourself to God in utter faith and perfect love, then whatever is born in you or touches you, within or without, joyful or sorrowful, sour or sweet, that is no longer yours. It is altogether your gods to whom you have abandoned yourself. From the mouth of this imaginary interlocutor, Eckhart sets up the problem and paradox of the longed-for union with the divine. How can we have moved beyond thought or language when we're caught up in a frenzy of desire for oneness with God? The yearning of the will for union with God he characterizes as a lesser form of love, will-driven dilectio, a love characterized by longings for the absent beloved the striving and searching of the bride in the Canticle of Canticles, queer amore longio, because I languish with love. I sought him whom my soul loveth. I sought him and found him not. I called and he did not answer me. The soul crying in the streets and wilderness for the beloved to respond is far from still when caught up in what Eckhart calls that great clamor of yearning. Equally, moving beyond desire to possession, from delectio to caritas, 
the soul rejoicing in possession of the beloved, all those verses of praise and delight that make the Canticle of Canticles so beautiful, is still far from peaceful or still. The answer of how we can be one with God and yet still is through detachment. Utterly poor, naked of every imaginable tie to the created world, our very selves no longer our own. Whatever occurs to us occurs in stillness, without the least effort of will. In union with the Godhead, in detachment, nothing can disturb or disrupt us. The soul is not affected by poverty any more than by possessions. And indeed, in her total poverty, she will be made most rich. For the void which the soul has created within her by giving up her will to God, God will fill with the free and unmediated divine presence. The well-ordered nature of the soul united to God treats comfort and discomfort alike. She's entitled to feast because she would just as willingly fast. Sweet, sour, joy, sorrow, as we've heard, are all alike to her because they're no longer hers but God's. The detached soul is so firmly grounded in God that she becomes herself the desert, the very same empty stillness where union occurs. The soul's nakedness and poverty are so absolute that in that ringing stillness, God's own voice can be heard calling out. God must enter into your being and powers because you have bereft yourself of all possessions and become as a desert, as it is written, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Let this eternal voice cry out in you as it listeth and be as a desert in respect of yourself and all things. Detached, we will become the place of peace which sometimes Eckhart calls Jerusalem, but more often, the nameless wilderness. It is a strange and desert place and is rather nameless than possessed of a name and is more unknown than it is known. I want to close this first section with a closing prayer for Sermon 3. That we may hear so seek this peace and inward silence that the internal word may be spoken within us and understood and that we may become one therewith. May the Father help us and that word and the spirit of both. So we've talked a little about peace. In our contemporary world, rife, as always, with unfairness and inequality, we more often look for peace or for redress in the eternal. 
But in thinking about eternal justice, eternal peace, eternal existence, we have to tackle a sizable quandary. How can we ever discuss and envisage eternity from the perspective of the human imagination? By what means, in other words, can we describe and understand something that exists so far outside the created realm that it lacks that most common and fundamental of earthly characteristics, a lifespan? Eternity, God, is like absolutely nothing in our universe. After all, the journey of all existence towards its death is not even confined to biological beings, since under the second law of thermodynamics, everything around us, by necessity, must over time tend toward decay. Humanity, through its history, has looked up into the sky and seen eternal order and stability. However, planets, stars, galaxies, universes are as mutable as we are and will likewise also die. Eckhart, who frequently characterizes humanity as being something among somethings, we've touched on that already, and sees all creation, rocks, plants, animals, that picture, thoughts, cheese, 3 p.m. on a Wednesday, all creation as mutual participants in a divinely formed multiplicity, Eckhart instinctively understood that inability to understand eternity that necessity that all is changeable toward decay, he understood that innately long before we formulated the laws of physics that prove it. Not only is the concept of eternity alien to us in our capacity as living creatures, so, some would argue, is justice. Certain 20th and 21st century philosophers of human nature, such as Sigmund Freud, Thomas Henry Huxley, Jean Piaget, or Richard Dawkins, argue humans to be born as blank moral slates, and that any ethical sense is a learned response. And this blank moral state is a very, very far thing from Eckhart's receptive desert ground. For Huxley, for example, altruism, fairness, and justice are merely a veneer, deliberately adopted to mask our true, ruthlessly selfish desires. Dawkins, going further, has claimed that unfairness runs deeper in us than a matter of pre preference or sought advantage for Dawkins, animals and plants are shaped by purely biological drives, existing only as carbon-based transport systems for their genetic material. In Dawkins' model, humanity is innately narcissistic, competitive, singular, unavoidably selfish in every cell of our bodies, in our very DNA. 
Griffiths, who famously said in his book, The Selfish Gene, a predominant quality is to be, to be expected in a successful gene is ruthless selfishness. This gene selfishness will usually give rise to selfishness in individual behavior. And let us try to teach generosity and altruism because we're born selfish. Now, spoiler alert, um, I think we can dismiss that one. <laughs> we know from our own lived experience how preoccupied even the very youngest children are with fairness. Slights and injustices rankle and remain long in the memory. Even the timid can display the courage of lions in the face of injustice. And this moral compass has, in our present century, been definitely proven not to be a learned behavior, an adapted overlay masking innate self-interest. Researchers at Yale University's Infant Cognition Center, known as Baby Lab, working carefully with the under twos, have shown that even babies of and below three months old possess a demonstrable sense of what is fair and can make judgments about what is right and wrong. Even before babies can think, can speak or walk, they judge good and bad in the actions of others because they are born with a rudimentary sense of justice. Not just this, but primatologist Franz Duval, who studied infants and has also carried out extensive work in the behavior of our closest mammalian relations, argues that primates have been shown to behave kindly and altruistically to others without any incentive of personal advantage, despite experiencing nothing of the conditioning effects of civilization and religion. Unfairness is therefore not inevitable, not systemic, no more than empathy, cooperation, and justice are quirks of human evolution and culture, forced on us by dogmas we have outgrown and should wish to evolve beyond. As human beings, we yearn for fairness to be done to us. We long for our merits to be recognized and our dues justly paid. If not now, then eventually. And so we have hope in eternity, in the judgment of history and ultimately God. Eckhart himself, who died under the shadow of persecution, experiencing under the Papal Inquisition the ultimate questioning of his own morality and fairness as a thinker and teacher, Eckhart knew what it was to long for justice. We know from one of his Strasbourg contemporaries, Ruhlmann Merswin, that even before his official persecution, Eckhart was given a friendly warning by a local priest for his style of preaching to the laity, for throwing, and I quote, pearls to swine. It's fine if you say it in Latin to <laughs> clever men, but say it in German to women and peasants, it was felt that he gave them too many great effusive things to consider. Well, you'll have to tell me if this is too much and great and effusive, but I think even we mortal lay people are capable of considering it. A papal bull condemned 26 of Eckhart's teachings, 
or what they called questionable propositions. And that bull similarly accused him of clouding the faith of the simple proud in his German sermons. I've talked already quite a lot about Eckhartian detachment, and it will be a theme that we return to over the day. But Eckhart's own detachment was tested to the utmost by the questioning of his integrity. The accusations, and again I'm quoting from the bull, that he had listened to the father of lies and wished to know more than he should. And we know from his own response in his defense that Eckhart deeply resented experiencing such injustice, which he must have known would stand on record eternally against him. He said, this needs a drink. If I were less well-known among the people and less eager for justice, I am sure that attempts would not have been made against me by the envious. For Eckhart, justice was not merely a matter of what happened to himself and his personal reputation, but of being permitted to teach the truth about human and divine nature to all his congregations. Debate raged at the time of his trial by contemporaries who knew him and by all of his readers and followers ever since that Eckhart's persecution was palpably unjust. Knowing then that justice is an innate to us as human beings, and that for Eckhart, it proved to be so much more than an intellectual concept, indeed was something he was fighting for in the very last days of his life. I just want to go on to talk with you now about the message of Eckhart's Sermon 65. Sermon 65, one of his German sermons, takes as its central theme, Justi autem in perpetuum vivent et apud dominum est merces eorum. The just shall live forever, and their reward is with God. That Old Testament verse appears in the biblical book of wisdom, purportedly the work of Solomon, but likely to have been written by a second century BC Alexandrian Jew. Eckhart wrote an entire exegetical work in Latin on the book of wisdom, Expositio Libri Sapientiae, said to be the most commentaries. And he uses the same verse Wisdom 5.16, as the theme for two of his German sermons. It occurs in the epistle for the Feast of Several Martyrs and was used four times in the Dominican Missal over the calendar. In Sermon 65, Eckhart starts defending the biblical verse from those who would deem it trite and commonplace, saying... In reality, it is a noteworthy and valuable saying. He then, without preamble, launches into a consideration of who exactly constitutes the just people who will live in eternity, initially offering a fairly conventional description that the just are those who behave equitably at all times, giving everything and everyone their due. 
He includes in this how we behave to God, who the just man treats fairly by glorifying. We're already moving into interesting territory with the idea that we can behave fairly or unfairly by God. But in his idea of how we glorify God, Eckhart doesn't give the conventional answer that we might anticipate, such as by praising him, living virtuously, building a church, painting an altarpiece, testifying on street corners, helping out at homeless shelters. For Eckhart, we praise God and act correctly only through detachment. <coughs> Who are they, he says, that glorify God? Those who, having gone out of themselves, seek not their own in anything, whatever it might be, whether great or small, who look for nothing under them, nor over them, nor beside them, nor inside them, not clinging to possessions, honors, comfort, pleasure, advantage, nor inwardness, nor holiness, nor reward, nor heaven, having gone out of this and all theirs. Glorifying God for Eckhart comes not through any kind of action, but through stripping ourselves of all the things that self-interest might justly argue belong to us, including the notion of eternal reward in heaven, which is, after all, what many, or even most of us, would imagine by the phrase eternal justice. But for Eckhart, in detachment, we lose all possessiveness. That frantic numbering, checking, holding on to things, lest something be snatched away from us. Holding most tightly of all, to our fragile ego, which would be slighted at any loss. Detachment may hold all things, but the detached soul does not seek, look for, or cling onto them, would have no means of doing so, having gone out of themselves, having lost their I. In detaching from any idea of what is fair to us, we give God what is due to him. What we receive in return is nothing less than God's own self. Eckhart completes an initial assessment of what constitutes living justly by saying that ethical and just behavior also includes a duty to behave fairly by the saints and angels. We're capable of giving them and God himself happiness. And since we can, he says, we should, by serving him, but in the right way, freely. Because the detached man cannot help do but what is right. Not out of a desire for our own eternal justice, paid to us 
in the form of salvation. Not clinging to holiness, nor reward, nor heaven. It's a radical reappraisal of what we might believe is a good road how we should live in the world and what we might hope for after. I know it's an encounter to what many of us have been taught or hold personally true. Eckhart, in no uncertain terms, tells us that the utmost ethical act is to abandon our selfhood and give up everything, no matter how holy or virtuous. He's got much more in store in Sermon 65 for his audience. In typical paradoxical fashion, he goes on to declare that we can understand justice in another way entirely not just to give up everything, but as a willingness to accept everything. The just are they that take everything alike from God, no matter what it is, big or little, nice or nasty, all the same, no less and no more, one thing like another. Of course, that's the same simply another way of looking at the total relinquishment of self-will. Some have called this form of absolute acceptance fatalism or even quietism. But it's not a passive state for Eckhart. It is an active condition in which I choose unambitiously, unpossessively, to divinely orient my desire. The just, he says, have no will at all. Whatever God wills, it is all one to them. No matter what tests or trials come their way, they do not remove their will from God's, even so much as to wish that he'd ordained things differently. From this point in Sermon 65, he becomes even more radical. If God were not just, he says, just people would not care for God in the least. Their oneness with justice is so absolute and pure that they would endure an eternity of pain rather than lose their adherence to justice and to God. Losing equanimity that even-keeled acceptance of whatever occurs is, he says, the greatest suffering that the detached can experience. For Eckhart, there is no distinction between detachment, justice, love, and identity. The just are those who live without a why and with God. Their existence flows direct from God into the soul. Living without a why is an idea that Eckhart returns to repeatedly in his works. All things that live in time have a why, Eckhart laments in Sermon 11, implicitly contrasting eternal justice 
with time-bound self-interest. Even necessities such as sleep or nourishment are prompted by a why. Any person concerned to maintain their life will seek them out. Or as, Sermon, uh, as Eckhart says in Sermon 65, why do you eat? Why do you sleep? And answers himself in order to live. And though deliberate self-neglect would be as much a product of egotism as selfishness, Eckhart's trying to make a point about a change in perspective undergone by the soul. In eternity, she exists without a why, having lost or abandoned herself. She lives governed no more by reasons, stripped of things. She cannot tear herself away to find explanations for how she behaves or why. But it might be more accurate to say she does not even know she is with God at all. Our contact with this ultimate, with eternity itself, which we can also call God, gives us a different perspective on the world, bound as it is to space and time. We learn that naked truth or justice are more to be clung to than God. For the God we turn to in need is a product of desire. Even if we're seeking bliss from God, we're lost. That God that we find there would be as created, tangible, and prone to entropy, to quote Eckhart, as a shoe, a cow, or any other creature. He can bring nothing but bitterness and trouble, evil and distress. But if we can leave that God and for an instant touch, Eckhart says, truth, justice and goodness, we enter with God into eternity for eternity. In eternity, there is only union and oneness. The soul Eckhart tells us in 11, does not want God, he is God. This is deliberately and provocatively paradoxical, but there is a very simple truth hidden at its heart. Why does the soul refuse to settle for God? We usually put inverted commas around it, but why? Because there he has a name. And if there were a thousand gods, she would go on breaking through to where he has no name. The there, where God is named, is time. Not wanting God as he is God can be read in two ways. The leaving behind of desire she does not want. But also the superseding of language, God as he is God. When the soul is in eternity, she is eternity and understands properly how God transcends all acts of naming. The soul doesn't need a name for the being in whom she rests with such intimacy. He has become a channel, a conduit, through which she tastes the eternal.
Sermon 65, Eckhart phrases it even more dangerously. So dangerously, this appears in two of the articles of the condemned list. So we take careful attention to this bit. The just soul will be equal with God and beside God. Just equal, neither below nor above. He is in her. The father gives birth to his son in the soul in the very same way as he gives birth to him in eternity, and no differently. He begets me as his son and the same son. He begets me as himself and himself as me and me as his being and his nature. He makes me one with his being, not similar. One with his being. The just soul, the detached soul, united to God, becomes not just, but justice itself. In union, she steps immediately into eternity where she is equal with God. Could this be further from our usual conception of heaven, the soul's reward, eternal justice? This is justice without judgment, without a judge. This is an eternity that the soul can experience even during the span of her lived days. Small wonder that Eckhart frightened some of his contemporaries. Even today, his ideas are an affront to that part of us that seeks to live ethically, desiring modest recognition of our efforts, that believes as per the Sermon on the Mount, that while the good may not flourish in our wicked world, they will one day be seen and rewarded for the truth they've tried to live. Eckhart's detachment is so much more radical and dangerous than that. It strips away any need for good behavior entirely. Or so his detractors would have it. But didn't Christ do the same and similarly cause indignation among his followers who believed that justice should be a totting up of moral credit, a balance sheet of the soul? When he forgave the woman who sinned, when he promised paradise to the penitent thief on the cross, he modeled exactly the same immediate, undeserved, irrational union. Eckhart shows that this is on offer to all of us, if we can but accept it. Now, just a moment of time. I know I'm going a little beyond the hour. Does anyone need to stand up and shimmy? Because I've got a few more minutes. Are we, are we okay for me to carry on and then we'll take a longer break? Cool. I promise I won't speak at you for the whole day. I want to hear what you have to say. The just soul's experience as and in justice has not come about because of acts she has performed or anything she has wished for. 
One should not work for any why, he says, neither for God nor one's honor, nor anything at all that is outside of oneself. Eckhart couldn't be more clear that what the soul receives isn't even as a gift, since that would imply a hierarchical distinction between God and the soul, putting them into a master-servant relationship. What occurs is a mutual flowing and flowering. Through knowledge, I take God into myself. Through love, I enter into God. When I say knowledge, Eckhart's meaning it in a, a sort of William of Saint-Cherie fashion. Amor ipse intellectus says love is a form of knowledge. Eternal justice has become the soul's identity, absolute and without distinction from God's own self. But how do we understand and live that truth? This isn't, in Sermon 65, the only time Eckhart dazzles with a sort of rhetorical firework show regarding the nature of the soul's identity in and union with the divine. In Sermon 7, for example, just to take one, he shows that within all God, all things are fundamentally interconnected. The soul joined to God is, through him, ultimately one with everything else that is and has ever been. For Eckhart, for the soul to know God is exactly the same as for God to know or see us. There's a famous poetic phrase some of you may know, the eye with which I see God is the same eye by which God sees me. The distance between perceiving subject and object of perception, the knower and that which is known, the seer and that which is seen, are collapsed into nothingness. In unity, difference has shrunk so utterly, so fully annihilated, that the rational mind is confounded. Eckhart's way of describing this relationship makes a nonsense of our usual way of imagining union. In union, all distinction and difference between God and the soul are dissolved. In Sermon 65, he says, some simple folk imagine that they will see God as if he were standing there and they here. That is not so, God and I are one. In Sermon 7, he says, the soul and God are in reality one and the same thing. One thing, seeing and knowing itself in a state in which knowledge, vision, and rejoicing have become one understanding. Eckhart's name for that state is sonship. We are called and we are the son of God. Not similarity, but unity. How it happens, Eckhart says, we do not know yet. We don't have the right shaped brains to process eternity. We're all children of time. All we know is that we share the nature of God's Son. 
But in this life, we cannot exercise this potentiality perfectly. Certain things impede us from a clear vision of our own sonship. What blocks our minds, what blocks our sight, is the way that our minds work. We focus outward. We question, feel, judge, and perceive. And these functions pull us into a vision of a world characterized by distinction. Well, as I've already said, divine unity is a state that transcends distinction or number. Every human being is the one son of God. If this perplexes our rational minds, we are nevertheless capable of absorbing it with what Eckhart calls our inward understanding, the spark of the soul. The spark is an image that derives from Plato, but entered Christian thought in St. Jerome's commentary on the book of Ezekiel. It's an image Eckhart returns to frequently. The spark is a flicker of eternity, a sort of beacon of love and knowledge that illuminates our hearts. It lights our passage back to God by giving us clarity of vision so that we see our own likeness to God and through that, the moral and spiritual necessity of loving all human beings and accepting our own creaturely nothingness. The spark lets us see from the perspective of timelessness. We step out of the here and now and into eternity. It is in the spark that we experience unity. There, all things are one and all things common. It is a flickering foretaste of the heavenly realm where my meanness and your eunice cease to exist. In fact, what is mine is more properly yours, God's or Eckhart's, than it is Rebecca's anymore. All is all, and all is one, and all ours. All divine grace spills into the soul from somewhere outside itself, but innately as its own, and as if they have always been its own. Spirit, Eckhart tells us, is in spirit. And the Son of God will be, is, in each and every one of us. We will not be like the Son of God, but will be himself in essence, substance, and nature. We know this must be so, because difference and distinction only operate in the created realm. In unity, they must dissolve. But though we know this is true, we cannot comprehend how. How can we be the ones of God? Eckhart imagines a listener asking, bolstering his query with a quotation from Isaiah, since God is not like anybody. Likeness is a notion connected to the outward focus, the process of distinction. To make a comparison, 
to examine whether something is like something else, there must be at least two objects. God transcends comparison on every level. For us to be the one son of God, the one God, therefore, we have to annihilate everything in us that smacks of distinction. We have to be nothing, Eckhart says. Only when we have uprooted and cast out everything that is personal, we might say ego-ridden, self-oriented, can we pass into the naked being of God. Nakedness is a frequent image in Eckhart, always linked to his theory of detachment. It means being attached to nothing, not even good things, like a favorite church, a preferred prayer, an image of God, ethical behavior, meditation days. All of these things are earthbound, all something. And as long as we have preferences, desires, choices, we are not naked and we are not detached. They obstruct our view of the naked Godhead. As long as we strive after such things, we can only attain, Eckhart says elsewhere, the way while we lose God. We'll know when we are reborn into detachment and out of the world. It is when we cease to grieve for anything. Grieving, suffering, judgment, a questioning, not acceptance. When we are able to grieve for nothing, then we have attained the very essence of God. In this state of grieflessness, our hearts are one and unmovable from God. Human things, even the deepest, most wounding pains, cease to affect us. For as long as they do, we can't be detached. In God, there is only love and joy. From the perspective of eternity, there can be and there is nothing more. When she knows perfect joy, then will the soul give birth to God within herself, a ceaseless eruption of God's own being, through which she is united to all things in an ever-present now. And this, then, is the soul's ultimate reward, though not ultimate in the sense of last, and not a reward that she could have earned or striven for. The soul doesn't have to wait for eternal justice. It's not her prize at the close of life received at the hands of a judge. It is an immediate and imminent transformation, revealing the true self, God, in whom we are eternal justice. 